Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Second Decade is a historical podcast about a fascinating time in history, the 18-teens, and how that little studied period shaped the modern world. Once in a while, though, you gotta spread your wings and branch out a bit. On Second Decade Off Topic, I'm gonna give you some more history that falls outside the parameters of the main podcast. Informal, less scripted, perhaps less serious, Off Topic is to Second Decade what the people of New Orleans refer to as a land gap. An unexpected extra. Hello, this is the second edition of uh, Second Decade Off Topic, kind of an after show connected to episode 27, The Bell of Nagasaki. Uh, I, I got the idea to do an after show because I believe they've done it on the show Stranger Things, where they have a, on Netflix, where they have a kind of a bonus episode uh, after each one. So that's kind of where the idea came from give you a little bit of history that's not specifically connected to the 18-teens. I'm calling this one Benihana Nights. I just kind of came up with that topic or that uh, that title, I, I, and I thought that I'd talk about the curious relationship between Japan and the United States and views of Japan and the Japanese in American culture and American history. This is sort of the flip side of episode 27, where I talk a lot about the views of Westerners by Japanese in the early 19th century. So that's the connection really between uh, this bonus episode and episode 27 proper. Uh, the United States and Japan have had a love-hate relationship for almost 200 years. Of course, uh, we fought a vicious war with Japan in the 1940s, uh, a portion of World War II. Actually, historians, if you, if you don't read a lot in the uh, professional history genre, um, you may not know this, but historians tend to call that conflict the Pacific War. I mean, yes, it's World War II, but World War II is an awfully big subject, which I'm going to be teaching a class about, by the way. Please sign up. Anyway, uh, the Pacific War, of course, that was an episode in our mutual history. Uh, and yet today, Japan's one of our closest allies. And even more than that, Japanese culture, anime, uh, sushi, I love sushi. Uh, and yes, of course, Benihana Steakhouses. So how does this complicated relationship work historically? Well, I think if you read the history, uh, that the U.S. was destined to encounter Japan from very early on. They were on a collision course really from the beginning. In the 1780s, just after the revolution, a maritime trade became really huge, um, especially the China trade and whaling, uh, which came out of New Bedford, uh, Nantucket, places like that, Moby Dick, if you've read that. Anyway, Americans were very big in the China trade and Pacific trade. Uh, Americans sought to carve out this commercial niche. Expansion of maritime trade brought us into contact with the Spanish in California. California was really more, I mean, it's not an island, but it functioned very much like an island. 
at the time it was not connected even to the Spanish possessions further south like Mexico. So it was uh, accessible mostly by sea. Uh, so anyway, maritime trade brought us to California and also especially Hawaii. I talked about that in episode four. And of course, uh, the other side of the Pacific, China and Japan. Uh, Japan was ruled by a military government from 1603 until 1868. And this was kind of the way we got it. It, it takes a long time to go into, but the way we got shoguns in Japan, the way you had a revolution in Japan, at least in the Middle Ages, wasn't like Western countries where when you overthrow a government, you grab the king and cut off its head and install a new king. That's not how it happened. There's an unbroken line of emperors going back to ancient times. But what happened was uh, military dictators, samurai shoguns, would seize power and rule in the name of the emperor. So, oh yeah, the emperor, he's still in charge, but, you know, I really hold the power. Because if you don't do what I want, I'm going to cut your head off with my sword. Very persuasive. So um, the Tokugawa shogunate was very wary of foreign religious influence. Jesuits, uh, the Spanish and Portuguese, I mentioned them in episode 27. European nations in the Age of Discovery really coveted Japan, but they couldn't colonize it like the Spanish had done with the Philippines. And the Japanese now unified after Sekigahara. I love to say that word, Sekigahara. Um, after the Battle of Sekigahara and the uh, unification by Tokugawa Ieyasu, uh, they sought to kick out Western religions, and they instituted the policy of Sakoku. There was American contact with Japan pre-1853. A man named Ronald McDonald, uh, no relation to the clown, he was actually born at Fort Astoria in Oregon. I visited his birthplace not too long ago. There's a pub right across the street. Anyway, he decided he'd go adventuring in Japan, He was and he convinced the captain of his ship to set him adrift off Hokkaido. This was in 1848. He pretended he was shipwrecked. Uh, some Japanese fishers had been shipwrecked near Fort Vancouver in 1834, so that's how he learned about Japan. Uh, and he ended up teaching English in Japan. He returned to the United States in 1849 with a number of other shipwrecked Americans. And then the captain of the ship that brought him back, James Glynn, told Congress that the U.S. should open Japan by treaty or by force if necessary. So McDonald was not the only one. Uh, other Americans visited Japan as briefly, uh, briefly as early as 1797, usually stopping at Nagasaki, which is where Dishima Island was located. And there was a lot of growing interest in Japan. U.S. was in an expansionist mood. This was the era of the Mexican War, Manifest Destiny, and politically, they needed to distract the country from the issue of slavery. So Japan made a nice distraction. The Perry Expedition was dispatched in 1852, one of the few accomplishments of President Millard Fillmore. Uh, anyway, he sent four steam-powered warships, uh, paddle, they're, they're, they're um, powered with paddle wheels at this time, uh, and several sailing ships. And one of the objectives was to secure coaling stations. This is the era where sailing ships were giving way to steam. Uh, anyway, Perry arrived in Edo Bay, Tokyo, uh, on July 8th, 1853. Quote-unquote ceremonial cannon fire, which was intended to scare the crap out of the Japanese. Lots of pushy demands for trade and concessions. And then Perry sailed away to let the Japanese think about it. The Tokugawa government, this we're the 1850s now, uh, they've been in power 250 years. By now they're old and creaky. 
have no military assets to compete with the West. Remember, I said that they banned in episode 27, I said they banned all firearms from Japan. Um, so ultimately, they decided to give in to Western demands. Perry returns in February 1854, rattles his saber again, gets a treaty signed called the Convention of Kanagawa. Perry is honored by Congress upon his return, and his memoirs, published just after his death, are hugely popular. And there's this idea of Japan as a new frontier upon which to project American power, thus completing the Manifest Destiny project. Six years later, 1860, the Japanese government, still Tokugawa, just barely, uh, they send an embassy to the United States. Uh, a group of diplomats, uh, they arrive in San Francisco, then they sail to Panama across the Isthmus, there's no canal yet, and they go up the East Coast. Uh, this delegation is famous for having a reception at the White House, where Japanese delegates meet President James Buchanan, one of the few, very few, high points of Buchanan's disastrous term on the eve of the Civil War. Speaking of Civil War, both the United States and Japan had some internal stuff to hash out. U.S. Civil War 1861-65, uh, Japan goes through political upheaval 1867-68. Tokugawa government falls, the Meiji Restoration, that's what we call it, uh, begins, and Japan starts modernizing rapidly, deliberately imitating the ways of Western powers, bringing in lots of Western experts, railroad banking, military experts, etc. The 1870s is a decade of fundamental change in Japan. You can see it everywhere. Japan also became very interested in Hawaii. Uh, by the late 19th century, it seemed that Hawaii, which was then an independent monarchy, uh, would become incorporated into either the American or the Japanese sphere of influence. Tens of thousands of Japanese went to Hawaii, uh, eventually a lot of women, the picture brides, you may have heard that term. Uh, they often worked in sugarcane fields. And Hawaii, by the 1890s, was a goulash of cultures, uh, Native Hawaiians, Chinese, Japanese, and uh, white Americans. The government of Hawaii was overthrown in 1893 by a group of American businessmen, mainly sugar barons, the Dole family. The Doles, the Dole, all the sugar barons wanted union with the United States. Uh, Hawaii did become a U.S. possession in 1898. So now suddenly there's large numbers of Japanese living in an American society, but Americans detested the idea of Japanese immigration to the mainland U.S. So they came up with an agreement with the Japanese government called the Gentleman's Agreement. It was not formal, not enforceable. But basically, Japan banned immigration of their people to the U.S. in exchange for certain informal concessions on the treatment of Japanese immigrants who were already in the United States, especially in California. Segregation uh, was uh, heavy, and that was relaxed a bit under the Gentleman's Agreement. This is a murky topic. I don't know that much about it, uh, but I do know the basic outlines. Uh, Japan starts acting like an imperial power in the early 1900s. They wanted to compete with the West in everything, including imperialism. Uh, Japan, in fact, was one of the uh, powers who had a legation. It was under siege in Beijing in China in the summer of 1900, the Boxer Rebellion. Uh, so Japan then joins the Allies in World War I, seeking to grab former German colonies in China and Pacific, the Shandong Peninsula, where the Germans had a colony. Tsingdao beer, if you ever had that, uh, comes from an old German recipe that was uh, as a result of German imperialism. 
There's lots of disputes involving Japan at the Paris peace talks in 1919. Japan wanted increasing influence in China and recognition of her own colonial holdings, principally Korea, which they took over about, I think, about 1910. Don't quote me on that. Middle 20th century, uh, in American popular culture, um, early to middle 20th century, popular culture develops a highly racialized view of Asians, the yellow peril stories. Uh, Japanese were not the only uh, target of this. Fu Manchu, that character. Uh, Yet there were many thousands of people of Japanese descent, children of those pre-1907 Japanese immigrants. Lots of people of Japanese descent in the United States, especially California, Pacific Northwest, and Hawaii. Nisei is what they're called in Japanese. Uh, Because immigration had been cut off in 1907, uh, most of these people were born in the U.S. to to, uh, to Japanese parents, but they were uh, U.S. citizens. So now we get to World War II. Uh, Japan is now ruled by a fascist militarist government. This is really, really complicated. Japanese fascism, it's different uh, and much harder to tell the story than it is uh, the rise of fascism in Italy or Germany in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, I don't fully understand Japanese fascism and how it gave way to militarism, but that is what happened. And China was the whole game to them. That's what they wanted, was they wanted control of China. The attack on Pearl Harbor uh, in 1941, uh, that was part of a cross-Pacific offensive. The trigger was U.S. embargo of oil and scrap metal. Uh, in the summer of 1941, uh, FDR cut off those commodities to China. Uh, I'm sorry, to Japan. Uh, the United States was Japan's uh, uh, main source of oil or petroleum, and this triggered the grab for Southeast Asian oil, which came incidentally from the East Indies, Batavia, as it used to be known. I talk about Batavia in episode 27. So then, of course, we have Japanese internment. This was Executive Order 9066, probably the worst decision made by uh, President Franklin Roosevelt. Internment of over 100,000 Japanese Americans, most of them U.S. citizens, uh, interned in camps on the West Coast. These camps uh, were, uh, were, they were kind of porous in the sense they were not prison camps, like, for example, concentration camps used by the Germans, but... Japanese Americans interned in this, these camps could uh, go off-site to go to work, for example, uh, but they were, you know, penned in in these internment camps, and their property was usually expropriated. So all the property that they left behind when they were rounded up was now uh, sold at auction. Some Japanese Americans, uh, again, American citizens, they served in the U.S. military, um, and there were battalions of Japanese Americans who served in both in Europe and uh, they tended to try to keep them out of the Pacific, but in Europe, definitely. Uh, Some famous um, internees of uh, uh, people, Americans who were interned in these camps that you may have, that became famous later, uh, actors, Pat Morita, who played Mr. Miyagi in the Karate Kid movies, uh, and George Takei played Mr. Sulu on Star Trek and also an LGBT activist. Astonishingly, the worst violation of civil liberties of the 20th century. Uh, Japanese internment was found constitutional by the U.S. Supreme Court. 
Korematsu versus United States, 1944. Shockingly, that case has not been overruled. It's still good law, though anybody would be nuts to try to cite it as precedent. But it's clear that we still have a long way to go to confront racial prejudice in this country. A disturbing incident when I taught U.S. history at the college level early in this decade, uh, when we got to the subject of Japanese internment, many of my students, my college-age students, didn't understand what the big deal was about it. They thought it was perfectly fine. Uh, that is extraordinarily disturbing to me. Long road back to reconciliation after the war. Uh, Congress, U.S. government, was very slow in restoring rights and property to Japanese Americans. And reparations were finally uh, begun to be paid in 1988, but it was too little too late. Meanwhile, Japan, destroyed by U.S. bombing uh, in the war, surrendered August 1945. And the idea after the war was to rebuild Japan as a peaceful power uh, and also to kind of defang the Japanese, uh, uh, so to speak. Their constitution, written mostly by Americans, forbids a significant military establishment. There's a little wiggle room there, but uh, in general, it's a pacifist nation by constitutional decree. And the, the, the game here was to counterbalance the Russians, the Soviets. Stalin was trying to grab pieces of Asia. And uh, Truman, who was now in charge, uh, wanted Japan as a counterbalance against that. SCAP, S-C-A-P, Supreme Command Allied Powers, that was the American occupation uh, government of Japan in the late 1940s, headed by Douglas MacArthur and his famous corncob pipe. He was really an American shogun in all but name. The Japanese people actually really liked MacArthur. Uh, in 1948, for example, signs went up all over Japan urging him to run for U.S. president. And the Japanese uh, began to embrace American culture, economic ways, technology, but the country was still economically impoverished. 1950s, uh, Japan, still under U.S. occupation, became sort of a base, kind of a staging area for American troops in the Korean War. Uh, in the movie and the show MASH, for example, they make reference to this. They always talk about going to Tokyo for R&R, rest and recreation. Uh, that was a big thing, again, early 50s. Many Americans started living and working in Japan, many, uh, and some Japanese in America, uh, truly a cross-cultural exchange. So uh, let's talk about one of these uh, people who came across. Uh, I'm going to butcher his name, I'm sorry. Uh, Hiroaki Aoki known as Rocky Aoki. He was born in Japan. Uh, the war occurred in his formative years, and he grew up to be an athletic wrestler, qualified for the 1960 Olympics, but didn't go. He moved to New York City in 1962, won championships, and then uh, uh, at night, uh, or uh, I guess in, in the, during his day job, drove an ice cream truck in Harlem, saved a lot of money. In 1964, he took $10,000 from the ice cream business and went in with his father on a small Japanese restaurant, only four tables, on West 56th Street in Manhattan. That restaurant became Benihana and became a chain of Japanese steakhouses. Other Japanese restaurants and businesses began appearing in the U.S. There was one near where I live, very famous one, Portland, Oregon, a restaurant called Bush Gardens. That opened in the 1960s, closed recently in this decade, 2010s. Your, your typical classic Japanese restaurant with the heavy wooden beams, rice paper screens, you got to take your shoes off when you come in, that sort of thing. 
American book readers were introduced to Japan through a famous book called The Chrysanthemum and the Sword, Patterns of Japanese Culture by Ruth Benedict. Uh, She was an anthropologist, originally published in 1946. Uh, It's based on wartime studies, commissioned, in fact, by the military in hopes of understanding Japanese psychology. This book, uh, it's a little problematic. It's kind of general, very preachy, moralistic, and paints all Japanese with a single brush. But this book was very influential, first in academia and policy circles, and then popu- as a popular book when it came out in paperback in 1967. There's a reference in the uh, show Mad Men to this book. Uh, Don Draper is seen reading it in an episode where uh, Don Draper is an ad exec and he has to do business with some Japanese businessmen. Japan's industrial trajectory, first uh, light manufacturing, cheap toys, a lot of substandard consumer goods, 1950s, 1960s were still in. Made in Japan uh, was synonymous with cheap and shoddy goods, the way that made in Taiwan was in the 1980s. Uh, Heavy manufacturing, though, was on the upswing, especially cars, eventually electronics, and high tech. Uh, Then the 1970s comes. Oil crunch, huge in U.S. economic and cultural history, U.S. support for Israel in the Yom Kippur War of 1973 causes Arab states to retaliate against the U.S. by raising oil prices, the OPEC cartel. There's gas lines, energy shortage, weakening the Nixon administration just as the wolves of Watergate are circling. People began to turn to smaller, more fuel-efficient cars, and many of these cars were made in Japan. So by the mid-1970s, Japanese words had entered U.S. commercial culture. Datsun, Toyota, Suzuki, those kinds of things. By the end of the decade, electronics started to flood the U.S. market. Hitachi was one of the biggest. Japanese entertainment products became increasingly found in American popular culture, often without realizing it. Uh, It started with the Godzilla movies of the 1950s, uh, Godzilla Gojira, as it's called in Japanese. Originally an allegory, believe it or not, of the Hiroshima bomb. I wrote a, a blog on this. Uh, And this trend continued through what they call the kaiju pictures of the 1960s and 70s. There's a great podcast called the Kaiju Podcast hosted by uh, Jorge Garcia, who played Hurley on Lost, uh, and his friend who have been longtime fans of kaiju films. Uh, That's a very fun podcast. You should listen to it. Anyway, uh, so kaiju films enter U.S. culture, then TV. Speed Racer. Who grew up on Speed Racer? I did. My husband did. Uh, One of the first anime cartoons to find an outlet in the U.S. Late 1970s, Star Wars whets the appetites of entertainment producers for anything sci-fi that could appeal to kids. Japanese loved science fiction. They were doing lots of it on their own TV. Sandy Frank Productions, company most famous for Land of the Lost, who remembers that, Uh, producers of TV entertainment, they spot a Japanese anime cartoon called Gotcha Man, bought the rights to the show, recut it, dubbed the sound, syndicated it to U.S. stations as Battle of the Planets. Anybody G-Force recognize? I know I'm dating myself here. Again, we're talking 1978, 79. Uh, If you were a kid in that era, uh, you probably saw Battle of the Planets on syndicated U.S. stations. This pattern replicates in numerous other examples of American producers purchasing Japanese TV product and then retooling it The most famous example of this, go, go, Power Rangers. So, yeah, of course, you know about that. End of the 1970s, U.S. and Japan, I said they have a a love-hate relationship. End of the 70s, they're in love again, at least culturally and economically. 
Then comes Shogun. Miniseries, TV miniseries, based on the James Clavell novel published in 1975, starring the Laurence Olivier of 1970s TV, Richard Chamberlain. Uh, Shogun broadcast over five nights in September 1980, biggest TV of its event of its time with the sole exception of Roots. Uh, I ought to do a show, uh, maybe a, a bonus episode on TV miniseries. Really fascinating history. Incidentally, Shogun is based on the story of William Adams, pilot of a Dutch ship wrecked in Japan in 1600. Adams became uh, involved in political intrigues uh, involving Tokugawa Ieyasu, who founded the Tokugawa shogunate. And in fact, the book and the show, Shogun, ends uh, with the Battle of Sekigahara, get to say that again, in 1600. Shogun was huge because TV at that time was a national communal experience. No VCRs, no TiVo, no YouTube. So when something big came on TV, you watched it. At our house, we were glued. Uh, everything came to a halt. Dinner had to be over. Chores done. Homework finished. Took, my mother took the phone off the hook when Shogun came on. And we watched Shogun. Uh, so it was a big event. Sushi restaurants exploded in the early 1980s after the series broadcast. Causal relationship, I think so. And Shogun, in this way, possibly even changed the environment. Overfishing of big game fish, especially tuna, is a direct result of the demand for this kind of fish on the sushi market. Also, these stocks of fish are being threatened by climate change, man-made climate change. Uh, 1980s, the love relationship swung back toward the hate relationship, uh, increasing economic anxiety as the U.S. changes over from a manufacturing-based economy to a service-based economy. Japan bashing becomes popular, especially in politics, the idea of economic protectionism. Japanese-made products are now everywhere, generally thought to be better than U.S. products. Uh, who buys a Zenith TV anymore? No, of course not. You need to buy a Sony. Cultural influences show this from the late 1980s movies like Die Hard uh, or Back to the Future Part Two de uh, depict Americans being dominated by Japanese business executives working for Japanese companies. This trend continues into the 1990s, globalization, and the era of Bill Clinton. There's still problems between the two countries, uh, especially Okinawa, which is a U.S. military base. We captured it in 1945 and have stationed troops there ever since. Americans gave back Okinawa to Japanese sovereignty in 1972, but the bases continued and there were repeated cultural clashes uh, in Okinawa in the 70s, 80s, uh, particularly involving rapes of local Okinawan women by American servicemen. So that has continually been, uh, excuse me, a point of contention between the two countries. 1990s, 2000s, we're getting toward the end here. Uh, common trajectories, common problems. Tokyo suffers from terrorism especially the sarin attack against the Tokyo subway in 1995, the uh, Aum Shinrikyo cult. I know I pronounced that wrong. The guys on the great uh, last podcast on the left did a fascinating series on that cult. Really shocking story. Japan's 9-11, basically, is what you think about it. After our 9-11... Uh, in 2001, there's political talk about how Japan should be helping us out more militarily in Afghanistan, eventually Iraq, uh, but of course their constitution limits their military capability and discussions about should that be changed. Western countries drift toward nationalism in this decade, the 2000 teens, things like Brexit, the rise of Donald Trump, that sort of thing 
is actually mirrored in Japan. There's rising Japanese nationalism in this period, the modern period, historical revisionism, denial of the Nanking Massacre of 1937, for example. This is becoming more mainstream in Japan. There's politicians uh, who espouse that the Nanking Massacre was faked. Of course, it was not faked. Um, I've seen Nanking Massacre denial uh, on my blog. People come by with comments, very uh, ill-advised comments, and assert this. So Japanese nationalism is a thing again, but nationalism in many countries uh, is a thing again. So we see it in Japan as well. Uh, so possibly the pendulum is swift shifting again, but the U.S.-Japanese relationship is always changing and sometimes changes very, very fast. So that's, uh, that's sort of uh, Japan and the U.S. in a nutshell. Um, I don't know if it uh, uh, justifies the title Benihana Nights. I just like that title. Sounds like a Cinemax movie, doesn't it? Anyway, uh, second decade main podcast, you probably got, I'm sure you got here from there. So do check out episode 27, The Bell of Nagasaki, about Tidia Bursma, the Dutch woman who came to Japan in 1817. Um, and my usual spiel, New Books Network, you can find me there interviewing environmental history authors. Going to be um, talking to my friend Sam White, and I know you'll want to hear him. Uh, New Books Network, science and tech category, Enviro Studies. My World War II class, online class, um, I gave you the link in episode 27. It'll also be on the website. If you want to sign up, uh, pricing and scheduling is on the website. Check that out. It's going to be huge. It's going to be like nothing you've ever done before, I'm quite sure. It's really going to be a lot of fun. Uh, and my website, seanmunger.com, Amazon. Look me up on Amazon. I have books uh, and my Patreon. So uh, that's it for Second Decade Off Topic. Hope you enjoyed. Uh, I think I'm going to go have a beer and maybe get some sushi. So good night and thanks for listening. The theme music for Off Topic is called Stealth Groover by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.